How many of you were asked when you were children, what do you want to be when you grow up? Yes. And by a show of hands and maybe use your fingers, uh, how old were you when that question was asked to you? Like three or four, five, five is, I see five seems to be the official answer when you're four. How dare you? Five years old is the official answer. So when I was growing up, I wanted to be a pilot because I watched the TV edited version of Top Gun. And uh, I was like, wow, Tom Cruise, he's such a normal adjusted human maverick. I want to do that. And then as I got older, um, I, I don't know what it is with Tom, Tom Cruise, but like I saw the, again, the TV version, uh, not the full version that has all the stuff with the stuff. I saw the TV version of uh, A Few Good Men, again, starring uh, TC, Tom Cruise. And I thought, wow, I want to be a lawyer and I want to wear the white uniforms and I want to yell at Jack Nicholson and be like, I want the truth. And he's like, you can't handle the truth. You ordered the code red, didn't you? I thought that would be a good idea for my life. And so I decided to go on. And then when I went into college uh, at Ashland University, I majored in political science because that's the perfect major if you want to go into law. I thought I'd be a lawyer. But when I went to college and I started getting into political science and I became a little bit more mature, there's a couple of things I realized about myself. The first thing is this. I don't like what lawyers do (laughs) for me. (laughs) We all need lawyers. And I know we have some attorneys in our midst today. That's not what I'm talking about. I don't like what lawyers do. And I don't think I could do that. And if you're going to be a lawyer, you should probably like what lawyers do. And I couldn't do that. So I was like, okay, this isn't working. And the second thing is between my sophomore and my junior year, of college, I felt a deep sense, a deep calling to vocational ministry. And then when I, so like I was, I was thinking about it, I brought this news to my parents and my parents weren't so certain about it because my parents knew me and they knew that I wasn't that great of a guy. You're like, you really, you want to do ministry? I'm like, I don't know. We'll see what happens. I felt like God's in it. But over time and through experience and through external verifications, the Spirit of God worked through me and called me into ministry. And I had different types of milestones throughout that that indicated that God was with me, that this is what he was calling me to. And so the rest is history. And so what do we want to be when we grow up? How do we discover the purpose for our lives? I think what we do for a living, our vocation is part of that. And last week, uh, we started a new series here called The Good Life. And the good life is really how we discover that purpose, living the life of, that God created us to live. And now regardless of where you come from and what you do or whatever your background is, there are three fundamental questions that every human being asks. First question is, who am I? This is a question of identity. Who am I? Another question is, who are my people? This is the idea of belonging. We all need to belong somewhere. We all need a tribe. We just aren't independent little beings floating around. We need to belong somewhere. And the third question is, why am I here? My purpose. And I believe that a major aspect of understanding the good life is understanding our purpose in life or what others would call or what I would call a calling. We yearn for a sense that what we are doing in this world is on the right path and that this whole thing called life is headed somewhere. And nobody wants to do something or to be something that they aren't supposed to do or to be. I mean, that just sounds awful. So what is it that we need to understand about our calling? 
Now, I believe that Jesus offers us a foundation that we can use as a starting place so that each of us can live according to the way God has made us and we can live into our individual callings. So I've called today's talk, A Life of Calling. Will you pray with me? And then we're going to take a look at some things. God, we welcome you here today. And God, um, we want you to do a work. We want you to lead us and call us into the things we're supposed to do. God, I just know myself and I'm not that good at figuring out where life is going for me. I need you. And so, God, I ask that you would speak to me, that you would speak to the people in this room and the people listening to this podcast. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm going to be taking a look at Matthew 3. If you have a Bible, wow. If you have a device on your phone, probably likely. But if you have neither, you can follow on the screens. And it says in Matthew 3, verses 13 through 17, it says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? And Jesus replied, Let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was open, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Now, last week, I mentioned and talked about that the prevailing philosophy in America is something called expressive individualism. What is expressive individualism? Well, to live a good life, you have to be true to yourself. You need to be authentic. You can't be fake and you don't want to live a lie. And I also said that there's something really right and something really good about this. We don't want to be somebody who is inauthentic. We don't want to live a lie. We don't want to conform to somebody else's notion of what we should do or what we should be. But I also shared that expressive individualism goes wrong when we look inside of ourselves to figure out what we're supposed to do with our life. And what we, we go off track when we look inside of ourselves to figure out our authentic self. Why is that? Well, as I suggested to you last week, and I'll remind you again today, none of us are truly marching to the beat of our own drummer. We are social animals. We live in a society. And part of the reality is that many of the things that we believe or follow, they're actually echoes of what comes to us from the outside through culture. Our desires, the things that we feel inside, they don't really originate with us. They usually originate from someplace outside, and then they may, and they make their way into our lives. They're put there by various sources. They're put there by our parents. They come from institutions. They actually come from the ads that scroll on your phone. And through. if you watch television still, you, you see them on commercials. They come from famous people who we look up to and want to emulate. They come from marketing machines that are working really hard to pull on your psychological strings to make you, to have you buy something. Or they even come from big business. And so the conclusion that I drew last week is that we are all followers. We are all following somebody or something. And so if we are all following somebody or something, the reality is that much of the good life depends on who you're going to choose to follow in your life. Now, I believe and Christians believe that there's no better model for living 
uh, the life that ought to be lived than by looking to the person of Jesus Christ. We say that he's the kindest, he's the most generous, he's the most forgiving, he's the, more, the most joyful. There's some joyful people in this room. Jesus is more joyful than you. There's the most free, as free as you think you are, Jesus is more free than you. And he, what, what Christians contend is that he's the most amazing human being that ever lived. And so in order to understand our calling, our purpose, the, the thing that God has made us to do, the thing that God has made us to be, we need to start by building a foundation upon which our calling is built. And we need to know our identity. Knowing our identity is essential. Now, let, we read this. Uh, this, is what, this is what happened with Jesus in Matthew 3.17. We just read this, but let me read the one verse again. It says, And a voice from heaven said, This is my son, whom I love, and with him I am well pleased. Now, I believe that one of the saddest things in the whole wide world is not knowing who you are. Not knowing your identity. Why? Because when we fail to understand our identities, it affects how we live. It affects how we treat people. It, it, it affects if and how we have certain anxieties about certain things in terms of relationships, romantic relationships, how we relate to our parents, how we relate to our friends and roommates and all the things, how we understand and interpret our work and what we're supposed to do, uh, understanding our careers or the trajectory of our dreams. Not understanding our identity, who we are made to be, is a terrible thing to not know. And so, who am I? Who are you? Beyond our names and our jobs and our families and how much money we make or some of our roles here in this church, who are we? The, most, the, the importance of identity, knowing who we are, this has been the subject of uh, lots of discussion throughout Christian history. Some of the greatest Christian thinkers in Christian history have considered these questions. Who am I? What's my purpose? What's my identity? John Calvin, he wrote the Institutes of the Christian Religion. He uh, opens his entire thing uh, by, talking, by saying this. He says, nearly all wisdom we possess, that is to say, true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts. The knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves. And he actually says that these two things are connected. And he goes on and he says this, Without knowing yourself, you cannot really know God. Without knowing God, you cannot really know yourself. So Jesus' followers and Christians throughout history, throughout the centuries, have believed that it's impossible to truly know yourself if you don't truly know God. There needs to be something in your relationship with God that illuminates what your life actually is. Because... Christians believe that we are made in God's image. And so it makes sense to start with God because God made us. That's why we do this. So until you know God, it's difficult to know yourself. It's hard to live the good life. And so you'll just be walking around the world like with some unself-awareness because you are un-God aware. And so if Jesus is our model, how did Jesus build his identity? Did he build it on what people said about him? Well, we know that's not true. Some people accuse Jesus of being a person that had evil spirits and demons living inside of him. Like actual like bad spirits would live inside of Jesus. That's what they thought of him. And sometimes they would call him a Samaritan. And so you probably don't know this, but like if somebody called you a Samaritan back in the day, that basically that was their way of saying like, hey, you're a liberal. 
and I'm a conservative and you're a liberal, you Samaritan, and you have demons living inside you. So like, that's what people would say about Jesus. They would say, you're a liberal Samaritan and you've got spiritual demons inside you. Okay. And so, (laughs) and so, and so that look in John 10, 20, it says, many of them said he is demon possessed and raving mad. Why listen to him? You're a raving lunatic, Jesus. You don't even know what you're talking about. You're a drunk. You hang out with people who drink all the time. So that makes you a drunkard. You're not orthodox in your faith. You deceive the masses. You tell them whatever their itching ears want them to hear. And so then that's why you have a big crowd that follows you. You're illegitimate. You know you're a bastard. Your parents weren't even married when they had you. You're nothing. And you're demon-possessed. So Jesus, he didn't look around at other people to get a clear idea about his identity. Jesus listened to what God the Father said about him. And when Jesus was baptized, this is what we read again. We just read it. I'll read it again in uh, Matthew three seventeen. He says, and a voice from heaven said, can I just pause uh, real quick? A voice from heaven said, wow, that's amazing. Anyway, a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love and with him I am well pleased. In the deepest part of Jesus' soul, he saw himself as infinitely loved by God. Jesus did not build his identity on how big the crowd was that was following him. If Jesus was here today, he wouldn't have built his identity on how competitive he was against other religious leaders of his day and discovering that he was more popular. He didn't build his sense of identity for when the crowds began to dissipate and when they, when they all left him at, at certain points during his public ministry as if he had lost market share in some sort of business. Jesus didn't create his identity around how much he knew, even though he was smart, and he didn't create his identity around how spiritual he was, how much he prayed, how much he did things to get in touch with God. The foundation of Jesus was simply faith that he was loved by God. Okay. And for a moment, I just want to talk to people who follow Jesus in the room. Now, I know in a room this size, there's probably here, people here who don't know what they believe about Jesus. That's totally fine. We want you here. We want to learn from you. That's why you're here. We're learning together from you. But for the Christians, the people who say, you know what, I've signed up to follow Jesus. I want to speak to you for a minute. How often is it that you just sit back and enjoy the reality in your heart and in your mind that God loves you? How often do you do that? I'm not talking about how successful you are. I'm not talking about what you're going to claim on your taxes because you think it's a lot of money. I'm not talking about how many people you're serving right now. And I'm not talking about how many people you're helping along the way in life or how noble your career is. I'm not even talking about how many degrees you've earned. And I'm not talking about how awesome your family is and how well it's doing. I'm just asking the simple question, how how, how long was it? Was it last week? Was it last month? Or in the last four months where you sat back and you allowed yourself to bask in the reality that God loves you, period. And in some ways, doesn't it feel a little self-indulgent? And yet the good life springs from this idea, the continual reminding, the soaking in, the bathing in, the drenching of your soul in the reality that God loves you, not because of anything that you did. 
It's not connected to some other truth. The truth is that you must know that you know that you know that God loves you just because. Not because of anything that you've done or will do. He doesn't love you because you got promoted. He doesn't love you if you or less if you got fired. If your boss recognized you at work or if you were on the chopping block this year, it doesn't matter to God. Whatever you did, I mean, I don't know what you did when you went to college, if you got your first choice when you went to school or your last choice, or if you've never been to college, or if you have more degrees than me. Probably not, but you probably, you know, God doesn't, that's not why God loves you. You may have been a really good athlete. Now, if you run, you stretch something and you break it and you have to go to a physician. And God doesn't care how good of an athlete you were then or how good of an athlete you are now. God doesn't care how much money you make or how little you make. God doesn't. God does not love you because you're really good looking or you're beautiful. And I know that's important to some people here in Los Angeles because the entire economic system is like, you know, uh, anyway, you know what I'm saying. And, uh, and uh, you know, and, and God doesn't care how spiritual you are or if you have great spiritual practices in your life. He doesn't care if you're a great Bible reader. And, he, and it's not because maybe you're a leader in this church. All of us need to come to the place and say, none of those things are the foundation of my identity. God loves me because he loves me because he loves me. Amen. So I want to drill a little deeper down into this, if I haven't already. Um, And I want to get to the foundation of what the living the good life actually looks like. And um, you might immediately say, well, you know. Um, you know, pastor's going to get a little religious here. Well, that's exactly what I'm about to do. And I would immediately say that the Christian gospel, and by the word gospel, I mean good news. Gospel literally means good news. So when I say the Christian gospel, good news, the Christian gospel is completely different than religion. And in order to understand our identity, we have to understand and know the gospel. Look at what uh, the Apostle Paul says in Romans 5. It says, you see, at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. And what the Apostle Paul was saying when he wrote this is that the very moment of uh, us being our worst, if if and when somebody was watching us on some video, and they saw what we were doing, or they saw what we were saying, or they heard our language, or they saw us freaking out, or they, they saw us being lunatics, or they saw us being hypocrites, or we were doing something disgusting. The Apostle Paul says at that very moment of our worst failures, our biggest embarrassments, and when we have experienced, when we've been some of the most extraordinarily profound fools we could ever have been, at that very moment, and for that very moment, Christ died. And he died to pay for our sins. And Paul says that at that moment of our greatest helplessness, when we couldn't figure out or avoid doing the terrible thing that we didn't want to do, he says, at that moment, Christ died to save us. That leads us to the difference between religion and gospel. You see, religion says, I made a sacrifice, therefore I am accepted. But the gospel says, I am accepted because Christ made a sacrifice. And now let me just pause for a moment. Why do you believe you are accepted by God? Right now, or at any given moment during this last week or this last month, why do you think you're accepted by God? 
Is it because you sacrificed something for God? Is it because you gave money to charity? Is it because you work for underprivileged people? Is it because working for underprivileged people is too much, but you'd like to think happy thoughts about them? Is that what it is, especially for the poor, your happy thoughts? That's religion, my friend. And the reason we are accepted is not because of our sacrifice, but because of Christ's sacrifice. And we are accepted because he lived a perfect life. And he died a sacrificial death as a substitute to pay for our sins. That's why we're accepted by God. And I can go on. It says, religion says, when circumstances in my life go wrong, or I fail in my career or, at, or in school... I'm angry at God or myself since I believe that anyone is good, uh, anyone who is good is owed a successful life. But the gospel says, when circumstances in my life go wrong, I struggle, but I know that while God may allow this difficulty for my training, my Father in heaven always loves me. Let me ask you a question. How do you interpret difficult times in your life? How many of you have ever had difficult times in your life? Let me just make sure I'm talking to the crowd. Okay, cool. Uh, cool. And the other half of you are such liars right now. So, <laughs> so good. Maybe I can learn from you. Um, but how many, you know, how do you interpret difficult times in your life? Are you mad at God or are you mad at yourself because you're going through difficulties? That's religion. That is religion. It's religion because you believe that your performance By your performance, you are owed something by God. And if you are living from the place of the gospel, you say, hey, life's difficult. I get that. This really hurts. I'm not putting aside the fact that I'm feeling pain. I feel the pain of the thing that's happening. But I know God loves me and I can trust him even with my future. Religion says this. Religion says my identity and my self-worth. They're based on whether other people believe that my career is prestigious, my house is beautiful, and my children are successful. But the gospel says, my identity and self-worth are centered on the one who died a shameful death on the cross because he loved me. Therefore, I am free to pursue callings that may not be high status or prestigious and the highs of the world. If your self-worth is based on some other person or what other people perceive about your accomplishments, you're enslaved. You are a slave to them because you always have to appear successful in every area of your life. But if your, if your identity is based on the gospel, you're free to be real. You can kind of let it all hang out a little bit and to allow others to actually see you as you really are. And you can pursue a career and you can pursue a life with choices based on the person God has created you to be, not what others say you should be or living up to those expectations. So knowing your identity and knowing the gospel is the bedrock foundation for living the good life. Now let's consider this whole notion of understanding our calling. Well, in order to know our calling, I think it's best to first look at Jesus' calling. Uh, Jesus is our model, so let's look at his calling. So in Matthew 3... We're going to go back to this chapter again. It says, the people went out to him. This is John the Baptist talking. And he said, from Jerusalem and all of Judea and the whole region of Jordan, confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. Now, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. 
People came to the Jordan River confessing their sins and repenting and getting right with God. And then they followed up with that by getting baptized by the prophet John. But we see that something different is happening here. Look at Matthew 3, verses 13 through 14. It says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? Jesus didn't come to the Jordan River to be baptized and to confess sins and repent and get right with God. Jesus had no sins to confess. So what's he doing there? Why is he a part of this? He didn't need to repent. He was already right with God. And so... The baptism was not an outward sign of having sins washed away by God through confession and repentance. So why did Jesus get baptized? Well, it says in verse 15, it says, Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is the proper for us to do this, to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. So what does this mean? Jesus is saying, I'm not here to deal with my own sins. I'm here to respond to God's call on my life. And in my identity to die for sinners and to sympathize with what they've gone through because of God's demand for righteousness and his perfect obedience. And so Jesus was called to identify, to sympathize, to connect with what everyone in the whole world has ever connected with. And did you know that the Jordan River where he was baptized, is the absolute lowest place on earth. It's so many hundreds of feet below sea level. And that's a great representation of what Jesus was trying to do here. He was, he, in every situation in Jesus' life, he desires to get low. He desires to get lower and lower and lower and humble himself and put others in front of him and go for it and just do what God has him to do by by being low and still identifying with people through humility and understanding. uh, understanding So why did Jesus do that? He did that out of obedience to God. He did that because he wanted to connect with us and so that he could fulfill God's requirement of dealing with sin. And so that leads us to our calling. In America today, and if you're anything like me, we begin by starting with our goals. What we want to accomplish with our lives. And we strategize towards achieving those goals. But if Jesus is our model, and we begin by not starting with our own destinies, um, we look to guide our path, we look to his path in a different way. We see the good life is not self-created, looking inside of ourselves to figure out what we want. The good life is a response to what God is calling us to do. So, for example, um, I would look at it this way. In the, in the, uh, there's a book by uh, uh, David Brooks. It's called The Road to Character. I mentioned it last week. He says this. He says, you don't ask, what do I want from life? You ask a different set of questions. What does life want from me? What are my circumstances calling me to do? In this scheme of things we don't create our lives. Wait, hold on. Let me, let me, in, in, this, in this scheme of, uh, of things, we don't create our lives. We are summoned by life. The important answers are not found inside. They are found outside. Now, why, why, do, I, why do I use this quote? Why do I like this quote? Why, I, I just would modify it and say the question is not, what do I want from God? The question is, what does God want from us? What is God calling me to do, to be? How is God... What is God summoning me to? What are we called to do? And our first calling, our first job, our first activity is this. We're called to a relationship with Christ. 
In Romans 1, it says this. It says, and you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. And in 1 Corinthians 1, it says, God is faithful who has called you into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. We are called into a relationship with Jesus Christ. The central meaning of life, as Christians believe it, will never be the the foundation of your dream career. And however much or how little you like your job or what you're doing for a living, the, the purpose and the meaning of life isn't found in that. It's found in God. And the most basic question any human being could ask is, what are you looking for? What are you longing for? What is it that your heart desires? What are the deep desires of your heart? And the answer is, whether you know it or not, is the the only thing that will satisfy the deepest desires of your heart is a life-changing relationship with Jesus Christ. And so this is our first and primary calling. You think of uh, Peter and Andrew, and they're working in the boats, and, and Jesus comes to them and says, come follow me. And immediately they left their career as fishermen, and they followed Jesus. And then a little bit down the way, he runs into James and John, and he says, come follow me. And they leave their family and their dad in the boat, and they go and they follow Jesus. And right then and there, they left their father just to do what Jesus invited them into. And in traditional cultures, the family was of the utmost importance. There was nothing higher than being loyal to your family. And Jesus says, I want your relationship with me to take priority even over your family. Now, today in America, we may, may, maybe we would say family, maybe we wouldn't. But there's nothing more important to us than our jobs and our careers And our dreams. And Jesus is saying, I want your relationship with me to take priority over what happens with your career and your job. You want to be and become something in Los Angeles? I want to be more important than that. And I want your first calling to be unconditional, unreserved, strong, healthy relationship with me. And so the second thing is, we are called to relationship with God's people. Here's what the Apostle Paul writes again in Romans 9. He says, as he says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people, and I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called children of the living God. Now, in context, what does this mean? It means that being a part of a community group or a group of people who are following Jesus is essential if you want to understand your calling in life and you want to understand the good life. It is an incredible experience to be connected to other people who are not your blood relatives, who are a family, who come together for you in an act of love and support you and listen to you and tell you the truth even when you don't want to hear the truth. They give it to you straight. You need to be in a relationship with other people who are also following Jesus. Because the church, what we do here, this isn't a place to go. The church is a people. It's a group of people. It's a community. It's a family. And so within the context of this family and in this community we can discover more and more about who God has made us to be and what we're supposed to do. You can begin to answer the question, what do I want to be when I grow up? And by the way, that question, I don't think anyone ever outgrows that question. I think we continue to ask that. Um, So anyway, there's also the third thing, we are called to serve others. Now today, 
thanks to social media, we have the ability to share with the world everything about ourselves. Everything that comes into your head. Every little feeling you have about every little celebrity or or what you think about what I did today. And when I got up here today, you can take a picture of every meal you ever ate. And you can put it on the internet for all of us to go, wow, I only had macaroni and cheese last night, but it looks like you had a better dinner than me. Uh, We live in a time of massive self-advertising. Look at me. Aren't I the greatest? But I need to appear like I don't think I'm the greatest. I'm amazing, even though, I mean, whatever. You know, so whatever. So, but, uh, and so listen to this statistic. Uh, in 1950, the Gallup organization asked high school seniors if they considered themselves to be an important person. At that point in time, in 1950, 12% of people said yes. The same question was asked in 2005, and it wasn't just 12% that said they considered themselves to be very important. It rose to 80%. (laughs) Now, if we're going to follow Christ, he has a revolutionary perspective on this whole idea about how we choose our jobs, how we think about our careers, how we understand our purpose in the world. And according to Jesus' model, we shouldn't just choose our jobs or conduct our work, or pursue our dreams in order to gain more power or money or more prestige or anything like that. Being in a relationship with Christ is supposed to be empowering enough. Instead, we are called by God to see our work as a way of serving God and a way to serve other people. So the way we choose to do our work is not by asking the question, what will make me the most money? What will make me the most famous? What will give me the most prestige in whatever circle I'm trying to run in? The right question is, how can, with my abilities and the opportunities that I've been given, be of greatest service to God and the greatest service, service to human beings on this earth? And, wherever, and so the idea is this. Wherever you go and whatever you do, even if you're in a job you like, Or if you're in a job that you hate, whatever your job is, you do it and you do it with excellence. Whether you're in the entertainment industry, whether you work for a bank, or whether you're an Uber or a Lyft driver, whether you work in fast food or you're a server at one of the finest restaurants in town, it doesn't matter. Say you're an Uber driver, say you're a Lyft driver, say that's what you do for money. In that context, you are called to serve others. You're called to serve your passengers, you're called to serve your company, and everybody that you come into contact with. Everyone that gets in your car is an opportunity to serve somebody. And everyone of your passengers is an opportunity to be the light of God to them and to serve them any way that you can. You are supposed to go above and beyond to care for the people who you come into contact with. In the same way, we are called to a relationship with Christ. We are called to be in a relationship with God's people. We're called to serve people with excellence. And I think we got to nail this in because sometimes we don't like our jobs. I'm telling you, it doesn't matter. You still are called. If you're a Jesus follower, you are called to serve those people. Do you think it's easy to serve people? No, it's not. Okay. (laughs) It's not because they're selfish. I mean, everyone else out there is selfish. You and me, we're not selfish, but everybody else is selfish. Like, and it's difficult. 
And so by serving someone, you put them ahead of yourself. You understand and you empathize and you sympathize with what they're going through. And you commit to doing excellence in your work, regardless of what they give back to you. You're not looking for reciprocity. You're doing it because the reciprocity has been flipped. Because the way the economy works in the kingdom of God and with Jesus is that Jesus is filling you with what you need so that you can love and bless others. Okay, So you don't have to get that back from other people. And that's really hard because sometimes you expect to get stuff back. But then we turn and we go to God. We say, God, fill fill me with what I need. And finally, we are called to particular tasks. God summons people, that's you and me, to particular tasks, to do particular things. Here's the problem. This is a fallen world and many of the things... Uh, Many people don't ever actually get to experience an overlap between their passions and actually making money doing their passions. Now, for instance, if you grew up in Africa or if you grew up in most of Asia or even parts of South America, you may have the mind of of a philosopher. You may be the next major world philosopher or the world's greatest artist. You may have a talent or all the faculties to be a world-class musician, but you don't have the opportunities. They're just not there. You're going to be a farmer just like your father was a farmer. And even in America, sometimes we have the skills and we may have the passion to pursue those ambitious, uh, ambitiously to do a certain kind of work. And maybe we even went to the right schools, but even then, doors don't always simply open for us. Or if they do open, or if we think we'll find the job that we want, sometimes the doors suddenly shut. They close on us. Hey, I thought I was going to get this job or I thought I was going to get this gig and I, I was there and I'm the right guy and I'm so much better than her. And like, but I still didn't get it. And maybe it went to somebody else. Maybe someone a little sim- maybe someone who's similar to you. Maybe someone who's a little bit better than you. And what I've found is sometimes our discontent may be the result of God nudging us to, to move from uh, success to significance. Success to significance. The Holy Spirit may be saying, I want to use your gifts. Chris, I may want to use your gifts to make a huge amount of, not to make a huge amount of money, but to help kids who are in a terrible situation or to work on behalf of women and children who are being trafficked or to do something else that will impact the world for good, uh, that will have impact in the world for years to come. I want you to do something significant that you cannot do in your current career uh, or in your current career or instead of this kind of successful thing that you had in your mind. But here's what Christians believe. We believe that our work, your career, whatever it is that you desire to do, it's just not going to be perfect until Christ returns. We live in something called the already and the not yet. That like God, there's still some issues happening in the world. There's problems in the world. In the meantime, whether through your job or through your career, or through your school, in your family life, or in the context of your church, I do believe that more and more we can experience what the Scottish runner Eric Liddell talked about in the movie The Chariots of of Fire. Has anyone ever seen this movie, Chariots of Fire? Okay, so there's a few people that have seen it. Um, Eric Liddell was a Scottish sprinter. He was incredibly fast. And in the movie, his sister says, look, you know, you're wasting your time being a runner. It's frivolous. It's a waste of time. And Eric Liddell, in the movie, he responds, he says, God made me for a purpose, but he also made me fast. 
And when I run, I feel his pleasure. So let me ask you this in closing. What's your sweet spot? Where do you feel God's pleasure? What is it that he's called you to do that you know nobody else can do? What is that thing when you do it, everything inside of you converges and you're like, I absolutely need to do more of this. I feel the pleasure of God. What do you do when you do that? And what do you do? uh, You actually feel like an instrument of God. You would say, you know what? I feel God's pleasure when I do that. You become a conduit. You become a pipe through which God is pouring out his spirit. Well, I believe that as we lay the foundation and say, God, I think that you are the one that I can look to for a sense of calling and clarity. That, God, I ask that you would assign me to a task. You know, when we understand that this is the way God has made us to be, when we do this thing together, we will experience the good life. That there is something to this. That like we're just not meant to, meant to and supposed to like go through life like without any kind of dream or connection to what how we feel inside of how God has made us. And so I think that's possible for you. I think that if you press into asking God, God, what is it that you've asked of me? What are where are you calling me to serve? Or what are you how are you calling me to serve people? God will give you answers on how to do that. So why don't we try to figure that out right now? Will you stand with me?